It is good to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is Vince. I am a pastor, church planter in residence, which means I am working under Pete, learning the trade and calling of, of shepherding and caring for and, and teaching God's people. And so it is a, a pleasure to be with you guys, to do life with you guys, um, to worship alongside you. So this morning we're in John 9. We're in all of John 9. Um, and I've titled the sermon today, Seeing Christ. And so we're going to talk about what does it mean to see Christ. C.S. Lewis once famously wrote, you might be familiar with this, he wrote this in an essay called, Is Theology Poetry? He said this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And this morning we're reading a story about a man who can say those words in a pretty profound way. I believe in Christ like I believe that the sun has risen because I have seen him and because I've seen everything else by him. And so it's my prayer this morning that as we read this story that God would encounter us, that we would see Christ and in seeing Christ we would believe And that we would see everything else in light of him. We'd see our lives in light of him. We'd see our relationships, our world in light of Christ. So we're going to talk about seeing Christ, but we're going to work through this passage uh, by way of talking about our blindness, about the nature of blindness. So so three points about blindness that I want to make. So if you're uh, the note-taking kind of person, uh, these are the three things that we're going to see about blindness. Uh, The purpose of our blindness the nature of our blindness, and the cure for our blindness. So Jesus' interaction with his disciples is going to teach us about the purpose of our blindness. Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees in this passage is going to teach us about the nature of our blindness. And third, Jesus' interaction with this man born blind is going to teach us about the cure for our blindness. So the first thing we see, we see the purpose of our blindness, the purpose of our pain, the purpose of our suffering. It starts... With Jesus passing by and seeing a man, and that's significant. We're going to come back to the fact that Jesus sees this man. And as soon as he sees this man, the first person to speak is not Jesus, but it's his disciples. And they ask a question, and that question is not a good question. It's a bad question. It's the wrong question, but that's okay. Um, God is, is really gracious with us asking some bad questions. But it's an honest question, and it's a human question. Boiled down, essentially what they ask is this. Why does suffering exist? Why was this man born blind? Why, why is he blind? And that's the sort of question that I have asked. That is the sort of question that I imagine many of you guys have asked. Why is it that we experience brokenness? We experience sickness. We experience disability and disease. Why do we live in a world with a common cold, with torn Achilles tendons, with heart attacks, with cancer, with with lameness, disability, with blindness? Why do, why do those things exist? In, in general, that's what their question is. But more specifically, their question is a little bit different than that. They say this, who sinned so that this man suffered? Whose sin caused this man's blindness? Was it his sin? Was it his parents' sin? And that's a pretty normal question in the ancient world because it was common in antiquity to think that a person's particular sin led to that person's particular personal suffering. 
that there's a necessary link between the two. That because I sin, therefore I suffer. And so you can understand the question, why, wait, who, who sinned? Like, he's, he's born blind. It, it, it's not like he became blind. He was born blind. Well, whose fault is that? You can understand their confusion, right? And we might say, okay, that's a really old way of thinking, an old moralistic way of thinking. We don't think that way at all anymore. But I think that way of thinking, that sort of moralism is alive and well in our culture. It goes something like, this person is experiencing this biological, physical, physiological suffering and problem because of some bad actions, because of just some mere choice that they made at some point in their life. That's why they're, they're suffering. And in many ways, to think that way is actually sort of a, a, a defense mechanism. Because if we believe this person's suffering because of their sin, I can then think if I don't do that sin, then I'm not going to suffer. If I don't, if I don't fall, make the same choices they do, if I don't do the same actions as them, then I won't experience the kind of suffering they do. And Jesus flips that over, turns it on its head, and shows how bankrupt that worldview is. And so Jesus could have responded to their question, who sinned such that this happened? He could have responded by explaining to them the cause of suffering, right? He could have gone back to the garden. He could say, the reason suffering exists in the world is because the entire created order, all the way down to me and you, the way we are even wired, is affected by the fall we're broken because, because of the fall of humanity. And he could have gone a step further, and he could have said, yes, there are times in life where particular sin leads to particular suffering. If I were to have a fit of rage and punch somebody in the face, they would probably suffer, and I would probably suffer because of my sin. If I punch this desk right now because I had some sort of fit of rage, which would be really out of place, and my hand hurt, I'd be suffering because of my sin. And, and a million other examples. We can look through our lives and say, yes, I experienced that suffering because of my sin. But not always. And maybe usually not often. A lot of times we experience suffering because of the brokenness of the world. Jesus could have responded that way, but he doesn't. He doesn't. How does he respond? He responds by immediately dismissing cause and speaking about purpose. It's as if he's saying this, the cause of your suffering is not what is ultimately important. What is ultimately important is the purpose of your suffering. And so we learn in this interaction with the disciples the purpose of our suffering. He says, it is not that this person sinned, not that he sinned, not that his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed. And then he says, we're doing the works of God. And so why do we suffer? Why do we experience this light momentary affliction? Because Christ is at work. God is at work in Christ to bring about redemption, to bring about healing. And so I think we see a couple things about God's very nature when we see that the purpose of our suffering is for him to put on display his works. We see his power, right? One of my favorite verses, let, let me, in, in the ESV it goes like this, but I really like it in, uh, I like also the message sort of rendering of it. The ESV of Isaiah 51, 9 says this, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. This is, what, this is how the message, this is how uh, Eugene Peterson translates it in the message. He says, wake up, wake up, flex your muscles, God. In many ways, Jesus does miracles. 
and handles our suffering to flex his muscles, to show I am stronger than your pain. I am capable of healing all of your brokenness. I, I have the world effortlessly in my hands. I have the power to heal you. But it doesn't just show us his power. It also shows us his love, right? His care that Christ would move towards this man. We see the very heart of God in the fact that he sees him, moves towards him, touches him, and heals him and makes him new. We see the power of God. We see the love of God. We also see that this is in many ways a foretaste of the very kingdom of God, that the kingdom will come one day. And when the kingdom fully comes, the blind will see, the lame will walk, the dead will rise, the, sh- the ashamed will cast off their shame and will stand in glory and stand in joy. And death will be discarded and we will live. And so in many ways, Jesus' miracles are saying, this is what it will be like in the kingdom. And they point us ultimately to that final sign, that final work of God, whereby he welcomes us into the kingdom, the resurrection. All of these things are pointing to that. So why blindness? What's the purpose of blindness? He's not saying this is the cause. He's saying this is the purpose, so that God could bring about his very work of power and of love and of redemption and of his kingdom. So this is the purpose of our suffering, the purpose of our blindness. But it doesn't end there. That's only the first few verses. We then see, I think, the nature of our blindness. So what is the nature of our blindness? I think to get there, we, we got to cover a bit of ground through chapter 9. After Jesus says this thing, he heals the man. And then after that, there are a series of pretty significant and meandering conversations between this man and a number of different people. First, he goes back to his neighborhood, and they're blown away. Why? Who is this guy? They're even debating, is that actually the guy, the guy that was born blind? And he says, it's, I, I'm the man. I was the one that was blind from birth, and now I'm not blind. So then they take him to the Pharisees, and we see him encountering the Pharisees, and he tells them, I, I, was, I was blind, and now I see. This man must be a prophet. So then they're incensed by that, the Pharisees are, and so the Pharisees then go to his parents, and they say, is this really your son? And they say, yes, this is our son. Was he really born blind? Yes, he was born blind. Well, how can he see? Why don't you ask him? He's, he's a grown man. He can talk to you. Then they come back to him. Let's pick up there, verse 24. Uh, they come back to him a second time, and I think this teaches us a little bit about what uh, God has done through Christ in this man's life, but it also teaches us about the Pharisees. And again, it is the Pharisees that teach us about the nature of our blindness. So verse 24, so for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether, you, whether he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you uh, also want to be, sorry, do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, 
This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he would do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. I think we learned a couple of things about this man, and we learned a couple of things about the disciples here. I mean, about the Pharisees here. One, we see that this man has really begun to understand who Christ is. When his neighbors come to him, he, said, he calls him just a man. When the Pharisees come to him the first time, he calls Christ a prophet. And then when they come to him a second time, he says, this man is from God. He's clearly from God. And that's, that's, it. that's messianic language. He is the sent one. He's the one who has come from God. And so we see that this, this man has clearly been changed by Christ in a, a significant way. Not only is he confessing Christ, but he's doing so in a way that is pretty profound to, to the religious leaders of the day. But ultimately, it teaches us about the Pharisees. He says, are you guys, you guys not get it? You say you don't know where he comes from. You say you know Moses. And here is a man that healed my blindness. You don't know who he is. And so we start getting a sense, maybe they are the blind ones in this story. And then we drop down to the end of the story, verse 39. And Jesus says this, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Verse 40, Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Verse 41, Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And we find this reality. That Christ has come so that those who are blind and know they are blind can come to him and find sight that they would see. He's come to redeem and to make new and to heal, but Christ has also come to judge. He's come to turn the light on and to reveal what's really going on, to lay everything in the light of God's presence and show those of you who think that you can see you are actually blind. So that when Christ comes, those who say, I need to be healed, he heals. Those who say, I don't need to be healed, I, 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 can, I can see fine. It's those who are condemned. It's those who are really blind. And we see in the Pharisees the nature of our blindness. It's a spiritual blindness. It's a blindness that might look at certain things but not see them. That we might, we might be able to read through the scriptures. They knew the scriptures better than anyone. They had them on their physical bodies in front of their face. They knew Moses. And yet they didn't know who Moses was talking about. They didn't know about the one to whom he was pointing. And they're looking Jesus in the face, eye to eye with Jesus. And they have no idea who he is. It's like they see him, but they don't see him. And that's the first thing we learn about spiritual blindness. That you can see things without seeing things. That there are, there are different uh, levels of sight, we might say. That you could see something, you could look at something, and not really see it for what it really is. So, a couple examples, right? I might, you might see mountains. You might see cliffs, but there's a difference between that and going to see Mount Everest. 
or seeing the Grand Canyon. Or, or let's say you're an artist and you understand line and ratio and color scheme. That's different seeing those things than actually going to, say, the Sistine Chapel and seeing it. Or maybe more practically, I might see that it's a bad idea to text and drive. But if I were texting and driving and got into a crash, I think I would see more clearly that I shouldn't text and drive, right? Or I might read Psalm 127 that says, Children are a heritage from the Lord. I might see that. But then when I saw Zoe, our daughter, for the first time, and when I, when I see our baby number two, who's going to come any time in the next month, I would see differently. They're seeing and then they're seeing. Here, here's the point. They see Jesus, but they don't see him for who he really is. They see the scriptures. They've spent all of their life looking at the scriptures, and they don't see them. They don't see God in them. And they've been looking at a mirror for their whole lives, and they don't see who they are because they don't see their need. They don't see their self-righteousness. And ultimately, they don't see Christ for who he is. The reason we can see things but not see things is because our blindness is caused by our love. We're blind because we love. God made us as lovers, and we love things, but what the fall did was just mess up the order of our loves. And so now we love things all wrong. We love things ultimately that were not meant to be loved ultimately, and the thing that was meant to be loved ultimately, we've exchanged it for a love of something lesser. And so we, we've seen that before. Maybe you can think back to high school or college, that person, maybe it was you, maybe it was just a friend of yours who had an unhealthy relationship, and all they could see was that person. They couldn't see anything else around it, and it was unhealthy. And they were blind to the other things in their life, but here's the, the, the sad irony. They were also blind to that person. Because they made that person God, they couldn't actually see that person for who they were. Or think about a job, maybe. Maybe you put your whole life into your job. All of your imagination, all of your dreaming, all of your planning is entirely wrapped up in your job. And the reality is, you see it so exclusively that you're blind to the things around it. You're blind to your responsibility to family or to friends or to your church or, or to your community, but you're also blind to your job. You don't see it in light of God. You don't see it as something given by God for you to fulfill your purpose and to live for him. We're blinded by our loves. And so we learn from the Pharisees about the nature of our blindness. We see things, but we don't see things rightly. We don't see them truly. And that's because we've come to love something inordinately, something uh, in a disordered way, um, as, as Augustine would say. The, the Pharisees love themselves. The Pharisees love not the word, but the feeling of being the person who understands the word, who has authority over the word. They love power. They love the way people look at them. They love the fact that they can walk through a room and they're the religious person that, that gets things. They love approval. They love their own kingdom. They love their self, themselves. And we're like them. Guys, the Pharisees, in many ways, we don't want to read them as some comic book villain in the Bible. Like, oh, those are the bad guys. Let's get them. Like, Jesus, we like him. The Pharisees, they're just a bunch of jerks, and we don't like him. Of course, they miss the point. Of course, they're against Christ. 
But I think we are supposed to, in many ways, see ourselves in their place. We're the ones who are enemies. We're the ones who reject. We're the ones who crucify. We're the ones who set ourselves up against him. We're the ones who are blind and desperately need the grace of God. We need, we need Christ to come to us. So in many ways, we are like Pharisees. And so you might say, okay, when we believe in the gospel, our eyes are opened. That is true. The eyes of our hearts are enlightened, Paul says, when we believe in the gospel. But here's a mystery, but a true reality. We might be able to see now that we've believed in Christ, but we don't see fully. Our eyes haven't been opened to everything rightly. We still have blind spots. We don't, we're still not for others. We don't, still lo- we don't love our neighbors. We don't see our, even our own lives rightly yet. So if you're a Christian, you might see, but not yet see fully. And so we too come to this passage and we need to feel the weight of this. There's a real nature of blindness and it's a spiritual blindness. And yes, Christ might have saved me and I I have overcome a lot of that blindness, but I still have blind spots. So then we come to the third point. We ask this third question, what is the cure for our blindness? If we have seen the nature of our blindness as spiritual blindness, what's the cure? How are we cured? And we see in Christ's encounter with the blind man, the nature of that healing, the nature of that cure. Look at verse 1. I mentioned this earlier. This is sweet. How is it that Christ heals us? How does he cure us? How does he cure this man? Look at verse 1. I think we're just going to walk through this passage really uh, briefly and see what he does. Verse 1, as he passed by, he saw a man born blind or a man blind from birth. He saw him. Christ saw him when that man didn't see him. That's like us. And we start realizing, what is the cure? It is Christ. And it begins with Christ seeing us in our blind state when we didn't see him. But then it's not just him seeing him and him seeing us, but Christ actually then moves towards this man. And look how he moves towards him. It is so unexpected and and, and odd in many ways. Look at verse 6. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. How odd is that? We know Jesus. Jesus is God. When God speaks, God acts. When God says, let there be, there is. When God says, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. He could speak and his word heals. And yet, what does he do? He spits in the mud. He spits in the dirt. He makes mud and he anoints. I love that. He, he, he touches his eyes. He touches the man's brokenness. This teaches us a couple things, I think. It teaches us that Jesus is not a distant savior. He is not a distant healer. He came for us. He came to earth. He came to our dust. He came into our lives. He came right up face to face with us. He saw us and came to us and touched us to heal us. That's profound. In fact, the the church fathers read in this passage about the spit and, and the dirt. They see sort of a parallel with the creation account. As God breathed into the dirt and made human life, God created 
They see this is sort of a parallel. This is, this is God recreating this man. This man was created by God and was broken by the fall, and he's being healed and recreated by, by the spit of the Son of God and by, by dust and by going and washing in the water. He touches him because he's a near Savior. He's a close healer. But it also teaches us that he uses very ordinary means to accomplish his transcendent, supernatural, otherworldly purposes. He uses the hands, the little hands, and the little mouths, and the little hearts of his saints to do tremendous things. Which is why we send people on on mission trips. Which is why we, we serve and love our neighbors. Because God uses our little words, and our little actions, and our mundane, ordinary things to do to eternal things, eternally weighty things. He uses ordinary things. And the final thing I want to say about this, about him moving close to him and healing in this way, is that he sends him. I love that. That the sent one, the missionary God, sends this man to take on responsibility, to go to the pool, to wash in the pool. This, I think, mirrors a lot of what it means to to come to Christ for us today. And he restores his dignity, right? Right? He doesn't just give him sight, he gives him dignity. He gives him a purpose. He brings him into this act of what he's doing. And immediately we see that it's taking effect in his life because then he's speaking to his neighbors. This man that used to beg is now speaking to his neighbors. He's speaking to the religious leaders and he's going toe-to-toe with them and I think he's, he's putting them on the spot. Because Jesus, when he heals, he, he restores dignity. Part of alleviating pain and brokenness and poverty is not just fixing material things, but, but those social realities of, of, of dignity and shame, and, and Christ comes to restore those things, even those things. And so he comes, and he touches them. He sends him, and then look at the very end of this story, verse 35, the last step. I think as we think through how is it that Jesus cures us, us of our blindness, I think how he cures this man, teaches us a little bit about that. Sort of the end of their encounter, verse 35, Jesus heard that the Pharisees had cast him out, that this man was already receiving persecution for identifying with Jesus. And Jesus is with his people as they experience persecution. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. We are cured from our blindness by encountering Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who has power and love and capability to heal our brokenness and even undo and heal our spiritual blindness, our self-sufficiency, are shaking our little fists at God, he in grace even comes to us. And so, so let, let's ask very practically and very sincerely, how is it that I am encountered by Christ? It is through the gospel. As we rehearse and as we say, as we confess each week, it is by the death and the resurrection of Jesus that Jesus comes to me and says, see and my eyes open, and I see him, and I see everything by him. It it is because Jesus, the light of the world, suffered under the darkness of death. 
It is because Jesus, the one who sees all things, has said to the Father, why have you forsaken me? It is as though the Father had turned his face from him. Let me, let me read to you a poem. This is a poem by Lucy Shaw. It's called Mary's Song. And I first heard this um, recited by Tim Keller. It goes like this, just talking about Christ taking on our blindness so that we could see. That's how we're cured. It says this, and it's Mary's song, a song told from the perspective of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Older than eternity, now he is new. Now native to earth as I am, nailed to my poor planet, caught that I might be free, blind in my womb to know my darkness ended, brought to this birth for me to be newborn, and for him to see me mended, I must see him torn. Christ has come blind in the womb, taking on our blindness, taking on the curse of our sins so that we might see. And so if you have not yet believed in Christ, I think we ask the question now, what do we do with this? Having encountered this reality, this text, knowing that Christ speaks to us by his word, we ask the question, what do we do with this? If you are not a Christian, would you see Christ today? Would you see that Christ is a better king, a better savior, a better God, and a better healer than you and the things you're going to? And would you come to him and give yourself to him and be healed and come to see, not fully yet, but to see rightly? And if you're a Christian, it is, there's good news here. It's not just a... You flip the switch and now you see and there's nothing else left for us. That's not, that's not what Scripture teaches us. It's much better than that. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly. He's speaking to the church. But then face to face. For I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. We only see dimly now. We have blind spots now. And so what do we as Christians, if you identify with Christ... How is it that we grow in seeing Christ more clearly, more fully, and seeing the world in light of him? We do it together. So let me give you a couple of suggestions, uh, exhortations, really, of how we could do that. One is through worship. When we come together to sing, when we come together to gather, we're formed by that. And Christ encounters us, and we see Christ in the lives of our brothers. We see Christ in the words of these songs. We see Christ ultimately in his word. In our worship, we see Christ. I would exhort us to pray. It is a praying people, a praying church, that sees more clearly Christ in his kingdom. He has so many riches waiting for us if we would come on our knees and we would pray. And again, another confession. Christ brings much to light through confession. And I am convinced that one of the areas of need in the church today, in my life today, in the world today, is for the church to confess their sins one to another. We need to confess our sins. I don't see these things rightly. And as we confess our sins, we begin to see from other people, this, oh, this is how Christ is at work in the world. And then last, as I, specifically because it's Father's Day, this has made me think about this. We need to spend time with one another 
specifically those who are different than us. That's one of the beauties of the church. We have blind spots that people of different gender and of different race and of a different background and of a different socioeconomic status will help us see so that we might see Christ and the world more clearly. But I was thinking specifically of two people today. I think we need to engage in life with those who are older than us and those who are younger than us. Today I'm thinking about my dad, and so I'm thinking about the elders, those who are older than us. As you think of the people that are older than us, we need each other because those people have walked through pain and through life that you haven't and I haven't, and we need to hear of their endurance and of what Christ has shown them. But we also need the little ones. I think we need the children. Not only are our elders guides, children are guides for us. They see something about Christ and the kingdom more clearly than we do. Let me, let me read for you a, a, a long but awesome quote um, from a guy named John Mark McMillan. He's a singer, and he wrote a song about his children, and then he gave some commentary on the song about how children can help us see. He says this, the gist is this, if you have kids or you commit yourself to loving and serving kids, you will lose a part of yourself You'll give away a part of yourself, but you'll find new life. You'll find new joy. And then he says this, Kids, they give you the opportunity to enjoy all the things that you, in your smug sophistication, forgot that you loved. They give you snakes and horses and trampolines. They give you Mario and Saturday cartoons. They give you dogs and bicycles and nature shows. They give you costumes, forts, trains, airplanes, paper mache, comic books, Star Wars, and Dr. Seuss. When everyone else passes a cow or a horse as if it were just a tree or a rock, you get to stop and glory again in their majesty, and then you get to glory in the rock and the tree too because your, my, sad, glazed, over-practical, numb-to-beauty eyes have been torn open again by creatures who still recognize the transcendence in things that we have mistakenly grown to consider common. They find a galaxy of meaning in a duck, frog, or baseball. In this way, children literally see the world better and more accurately than we do. They teach us a new way to see the world, ourselves, and God. Christians, we need to worship, pray, confess, and live together because, because we are different and because Christ is at work in us and Christ is at work in us together showing us our blind spots and ultimately showing us Christ more clearly and more powerfully. And last, let me say this. Let us with joy and let us with hope long together for that day when Christ comes, when we really, truly, with our eyes, see Christ. Let me leave you with these words from a, uh, a popular hymn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus church. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim and one day strangely bright in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you that we are on a journey together. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher, beginning and end of our story and of our faith. Let us see that he has come and shut his eyes in death, our death, so that we might live, be healed, and see him. 
Help us today to believe in you like we believe in the Son. Not only because we have seen you, Christ, but because we've seen everything else by you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.